At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. All children ages up through fourth grade are eligible to go to Children's Church. If you're staying here and you are not in fourth grade or below, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus is still preaching from the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 10, and this follows up the healing of the blind man. And oftentimes we don't see the connection, and I'll try to make the connection here, between the Pharisees and the scribes and the blind man who um, was healed by Jesus. But as we read, I'm going to read actually verse 1 through 21 to give us um, this as a whole so we understand some context, because context is key. So hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeepers opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's a little book um, out. Uh, it is by a man named Philip Keller, W. Philip Keller. And W. Philip Ke Keller was actually no relation to Tim Keller, uh, although we've quoted him a bunch. Uh, but this, uh, this man, uh, first of all, he grew up and lived in East Africa, surrounded by simple native herders whose customs closely resembled those of their counterparts in the Middle East. So he is intimately acquainted with being a shepherd. He is um, acquainted with the romance, the pathos, the picturesque life of an Eastern shepherd. And as a young man, he actually made his livelihood for about eight years as a sheep owner and sheep rancher. That's what he did. And what he says about the sheep and the shepherd is this. He says, they belong to me. 
these sheep. He actually bought them in the midst of the Great Depression. They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate girding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were, in very truth, a part of me, and I a part of them. This made those 30 little ewes exceedingly precious to me. Keller writes about another man who was a hired shepherd. He did not own the sheep. And here's what he said about a hired man, a hired shepherd. He says this, he said, he ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. Keller writes, his stock was always, were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. The reason was that the hired shepherd had no personal interest in the sheep and did not expend himself in preparing green pastures. Now, as we think about this, this is another I am statement of Jesus. And Jesus has given us another I am statement last week when he says, I am the door. And what, we, what he's saying there is he, he's revealing himself to his people so that they will know that he is the only way for salvation, that he is um, the bread of life. Um, that he is uh, the way, the truth, and the life. We'll get to that in, in John 14. But last week we talked about the door. Uh, this week we're talking about him being the good shepherd. Now, as Jesus talks about the good shepherd, notice what he says in verse 11. Again, last week we talked about um, having life and having it abundantly. But in verse 11 he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I have four different things I want to say with regard to him being the good shepherd this morning. But the first is this, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We see this also um, in verse 15, where he says, I am the good shepherd, in verse 14, I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, we read about this, and, and this is really talking about this idea of atonement, atonement for sin. And we think about that in the midst of maybe Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that's what we're talking about when he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. That I will take upon myself all of your weakness, all of your sinfulness, I will take it upon myself. And when I do that, I am making atonement for your sin. He sheds his own blood on behalf of the sheep to redeem them and to purchase them and to call them mine. See, there is this sense in which when we talk about redemption, redemption is the metaphor of the marketplace. Again, we redeem something. Oftentimes we redeem maybe a gift card or maybe a voucher. And when we're redeemed, we are purchased at a price. And when we are called the sheep of his pasture, 
Um, it's, it, there's no mistake here when we think about, you know, what the image is of, of sheep and shepherds. We see that even in Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, that Abel was a keeper of sheep, and he was one who offered a suitable sacrifice. If you remember that Moses, when he was called by God to be the great prophet who would redeem the people out of Egypt in slavery, that he was keeping sheep. He was a shepherd of the sheep of Midian when God called him at the burning bush. We see Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, was a shepherd, as was his son Joseph. We also see David was the great shepherd king from Israel. This idea of a shepherd is just all over the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, it talks about the Messiah, and it says this about the Messiah, that he will tend the flocks like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young, with the young. So Jesus says, when I am the shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep, there's this image that he is the Messiah, he is the promised shepherd that all of the Old Testament was speaking about. And when Jesus does that, he takes upon himself all the sins of everyone who would believe. And we call that atonement. Now, there's, there's this other word um, that we use sometimes, uh, and it's a word that we don't hear often, but it's this term vicarious. What does that term mean, vicarious? Sometimes we hear the term uh, vicariously living it out through your children, right? By the way, dad shouldn't do that in any sporting events. You should not vicariously live through your children. But how does this vicarious death work itself out? Vicarious describes something performed or suffered in the place of others for the sheep. He offered himself as a substitute for sinners before the holy justice of God. He accepted accepted the guilt that our sins deserved and received God's wrath, his holy, righteous judgment in our place. He is a vicarious substitute for you and for me. John Murray says this, he, he says, he sheds his own blood on behalf of the sheep to redeem them and purchase them and to call them mine. Murray says this, death was not his fate, speaking of Jesus, it was his deed, D-E-E-D. Death was not his face, fate, it was his deed. He grasped it. Death was his triumphal act. Never was he more victorious than on the cross. Murray again says, it was through the eternal Son of God took his human body in one hand and his human soul in the other, and he rent them apart so that we might be saved. Now, this cost of our salvation, it is because he lays down his life for the sheep. Now notice what it says um, in verse 18. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Meaning that I do this, not because somebody is forcing me, but I do this out of my own accord in the plan of the Father to redeem those, all those who would believe. That's the plan, that's the gospel message working itself out, that the shepherd would lay down his life for you and me, the sheep. Secondly, the good shepherd protects the sheep 
from the wolves seeking to destroy the sheep. Now, look at what it says in, um, in verse 12 of John chapter 10. It says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, even though this person might be dealing with sheep, they're not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So what are the wolves seeking to do to the sheep? There's a couple things. They're looking for an easy dinner, or it's for a feast. They're also looking to slaughter the sheep. They're looking to destroy, to scatter, to frighten, to discourage, to confuse, and perhaps even use those sheep for their own selfish ends. And what Jesus is saying, and he is making, this is very clear now, because again, um, they did not understand in verse 6 what he was saying about the doors, and so Jesus is getting very explicit with the Pharisees here. And so he's saying to them, I am the good shepherd, and you are nothing more than hired hands. And you are using, abusing, feasting upon, confusing the sheep. And this is a controversial statement that Jesus is uttering here. Again, how do we see false shepherds infiltrating the church even today, or the people of God today? They infiltrate it with a false gospel. People will even come in and say that we are saved by something else other than the grace of Jesus. Or maybe they're saying that we actually saved by our good works rather than saying we are saved by the good works of Jesus alone for our salvation. We see that people will twist the gospel. They will manipulate the gospel for their own ends. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but how many of you guys have seen, heard of, or, or seen on TV pastors and preachers who will say that you will get a blessing if you will give them money. Anybody ever heard of that? We call that the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. That is a wicked, wicked thing. Um, I mean, by the way, I don't have a private jet. Uh, I don't fly here on a helicopter or anything like that. Um, but there are pastors who will use their position and use the sheep for their own ends. People will say that we are saved by something along with Christ or that we are saved by our good works, saved by someone other than Christ. Selfish hirelings oftentimes only see the value of the sheep in terms of what they can do for the hirelings. So are we going to use your skills, gifts, and abilities to expand the kingdom of God, or will selfish hirelings use your skills, gifts, and abilities to bring them profit and honor in their ministry? You know, whose kingdom are we building? I pray that we are not building the kingdom of man, but rather that we are building the kingdom of God. That we want to grow the name of Jesus and that the name of, you know, whether it's, you know, George or Bill or any pastor that comes to this church, you know, what is it we're called to, to preach faithfully and then die? So that the name of Jesus might be magnified and glorified and will go out in power. The Apostle Paul in, 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 in the book of Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. 
And essentially, you could almost say wolves there, right? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, what Paul is saying is there are people there who are saying, this is how you have to be a Christian. This is what you must do in order to be a Christian. Back then it was, you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And what they're saying today and what other people are saying is, you must do X, Y, or Z in order to be a Christian. The gospel message is this, it's Jesus alone. Do you trust and believe in Jesus? Jesus speaks this way to the scribes and Pharisees in, in the book of Luke, when he says in Luke chapter 11, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And he says it again in Luke chapter 20, verse 46, to the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. You see, what he's saying here, this is a direct confrontation with the Jewish leadership right now, as he's saying, you are not shepherds, you are hirelings, and you are abusing and using the sheep for your own selfish gain. And we have to be careful as the church. We have to be careful of the church when we appoint leaders, when we nominate and elect elders. When we bring in pastors, we have to be careful that their skills, gifts, and abilities do not outpace their character. Because when skills, gifts, and abilities outpace character, then the sheep are in peril. And they might feed for a while, but eventually the character flaws will show. It was uh, noted in, in Philip Keller's book, uh, when he would talk about um, when there, there was a, a time where two dogs, two dogs got into a flock of sheep and in one night destroyed 238 sheep in one night. Just two dogs. No shepherd was there to watch. No shepherd was there to fend them off. And two dogs. Now, in a similar way, we have seen that within the community of faith at times. I mean, many of you have been a part of churches where people have come in and they have actually caused the sheep of that flock to scatter. And that's a wicked, wicked thing. And so we have to be vigilant. We have to be uh, like what Paul says in Philippians, look out for the dogs. We have to be look out for people who think that they're leaders, who think that they're pastors, but are really not pastors. Or really, you know, they don't really have any sheep to follow them. I had a, uh, one of my elders in uh, Virginia, he was from Oklahoma, and he had all these Oklahomisms, which are always good, you know. And he would say, yeah, that guy, he's got a big hat and a big buckle, but he ain't got no cattle. <laughs> and by that, he, he looks the part of a leader or a pastor, but he is not pastoring. He is not leading. He thinks he is, but he's got nobody to follow him. You see, the thing about the good shepherd and the thing about ancient Near Eastern shepherds is they were always drawing lambs to them. They weren't driving lambs from behind. They were drawing them to places where they could eat and prosper. The third thing, look at, um, I want you to see in verse 16, it says, the good shepherd has sheep not of this fold. 
Look at what it says in, in verse 16. It says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see, heaven, what Jesus was saying is that heaven will not be full of only Jewish people, but heaven will be filled full of all nations, tribes, and tongues. And just like in in John chapter 4, where he meets the woman uh, at the well, and she's a Samaritan, and she welcomes him into the family of God, and she goes and begins to tell the Samaritan village. You know, she's emblematic of of those people, those those, people, you may be pre-church age people. We think about um, uh, other people like Ruth in the Old Testament, a Moabitess who was welcomed in. She's the first fruit of those who would come and be believers outside of the Jewish nation. And what we find here is that Jesus is saying is that there are those that we must, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. What does that mean? Well, I think about this in in the context of preaching the gospel, the word of truth going out. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, the apostle Paul says this, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, there's something powerful in the preaching of God's word, the preaching of the gospel message, the telling of the old, old story to our friends and our neighbors. I think it's not just enough to give somebody a tract to tell them about Jesus. I think that we actually have an obligation by Jesus, compelled by our love for Jesus, to actually bring the gospel message to bear with our lives and with our lips so that they will hear the gospel and they will respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. And they they will know that in Christ there is forgiveness. And in Christ we can be knit together as the family of God. And, And quite frankly, one of the things that's going on today that I think is very important is that people are looking for a place to belong. They're looking for a place to belong. Many people are finding uh, false intimacy in social media and other things like that. But the church, the family of God, and we get into the family of God by trusting and believing in Jesus. We are knit together as the family of God. And if you believe that, then you belong. I mean, just as we stood up here and I, and I had you guys stand up, I mean, we're talking about the family of God that we are connected as elder mothers and fathers of, of these children, that we are called to care for them, to pray for them, to help them along in their Christian life. It is a beautiful thing to belong to the people of God. It's a good, good thing. And so we send out missionaries to bring in other brothers and sisters into the family of God. I think about this uh, story uh, from, uh, from Edgerton Young, the first missionary to the Native Americans in Saskatchewan. On one occasion, Young explained to an old Indian chief the love of God as the father of all who believe in Jesus. This idea amazed the chief. That is very new and sweet to me, he said. We have never thought of the great spirit as father. We heard him in the thunder, we saw him in the lightning, the tempest, and the blizzard, and we're afraid. So when you tell us that the great spirit is our father, that is very beautiful to us. 
He then paused as another thought came to him. Missionary, he said, did you say that the great spirit is your father? Yes, Young answered. And did you say that he is the Indian's father? I did, said the missionary. Then cried the old chief with a look of great joy, you and I are brothers. Knit together by Jesus Christ. And and I guess what I'm saying is, we are called by God to go in search of our lost brothers and sisters and to bring the gospel message to bear. Lastly, uh, when I think about Jesus being the good shepherd, the good shepherd knows his sheep. A sheep rancher once said, I think a sheep spends all of their time thinking of ways to kill itself. Spend all of their time thinking of ways to die. Because again, they're they're not, um, they do bite. I mean, sheep do bite, but they really have no ability to protect themselves in the midst of, you know, attack. But a good shepherd knows his sheep intimately. He knows which ones are stubborn, which ones need or show more affection. He knows which ones stray away and which ones are fearful. He knows which ones are prone to wander and which ones need more correction in their lives. That is comforting to me when I think about that. When I think that our Father in heaven and our good, good Father Our shepherd knows when I am struggling, when I am wayward. One of the things I love to do in the midst of the church is um, about nine o'clock, people come in for Sunday school, and I like to just greet families coming in. And it's really funny to to greet families coming in because you can see who comes into church excited to be there. Yeah, you just see it. And, and what I see is uh, larger families, you can tell, because some kids are like skipping along. They're like, oh man, it's church. It's a good day. You're giving high fives as they go into church. And you got other people who look like somebody drug them out of bed. Somebody drug them out of bed and they're not as, now maybe they're just tired. You know, maybe they're, maybe they're just tired, but there's also this kind of like, um, it's like, I don't know, it's like they're, they're walking the green mile or something like that as they go into church. You know, and they're, and they're thinking like, I don't want to be here. You know, and, and, and you know, the moms and dads are shepherding these children. You know, some, some they're like, go ahead, go play. And the others, they have sort of have their hand on. Others, you better not touch them because it's still before 10 o'clock. And they become a little, the sheep, those sheep get a little prickly, right? You know, if you touch them too early. And so you kind of learn how to shepherd the flock that the Lord has given you. You sort of understand who to talk to, who not to talk to, who to ask a question to, who not to ask a question to. How do you encourage? How do you, you know, all of these kind of things. But our Father in heaven also knows that. You see, child of God, your Father knows you and he loves you. You see, the blind man in John chapter 9 was one of the lost sheep of Israel. And if you look back in chapter 9, it is associated with this passage in John 10, and Jesus raised up those who are cast down, those who are struggling, those who have found themselves in a crevice. Quite frankly, you know, that video that I shared at the very beginning of that sheep in that crevice, in that really, really narrow ditch, that sheep had no chance of getting out of that ditch, none whatsoever. 
So the little shepherd boy grabs that sheep by the back leg with a, with a you didn't have a shepherd's crook, but he had like a, a little strap and he pulls that sheep out. That sheep had no chance of surviving. He pulls that sheep out. And you know what that sheep does? Joyfully, he goes prancing about back into the ravine. Some of you are like that. I'm like that. My sin trenches, <laughs> I'm not falling into, I'm jumping into them sometimes. And our Father in heaven knows that. And there's this passage in John, I mean, in, in Psalm 23, where it says, He restores my soul. When it's been a hard week, um, an emotional week, a difficult week of loss and grief and wondering why, I want my shepherd to restore my soul. I want him to grab me out of that ravine and, and care for me and lead me. And our Father and the Son do that for us. Let me conclude with this story. Um, he speaks about it in this way. Um, this is um, a story from, again, it's a little book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. I'm quoting Philip Keller here. Um, in Psalm 42, 11, he cries out, you know, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. We feel like that, don't we? Downcast. Now, there's an exact parallel to this in caring for sheep. Only those intimately acquainted with sheep and their habits understand the significance of a cast sheep or a cast down sheep. This is an old English shepherd's term for a sheep that is turned over on its back and cannot get up again by itself. A cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleat a little for help, but generally it lies there, lashing about in frightened frustration. If the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. This is but another reason why it is so essential for a careful sheepman to look over his flock every day, counting them to see that all are able to be up and on their feet. If one or two are missing, often the first thought to flash in his mind is, one of my sheep is cast somewhere or cast down somewhere. I must go in search and set it on its feet again. This knowledge that any cast sheep is helpless, close to death, and vulnerable to attack makes the whole problem of cast sheep serious for the shepherd. Nothing seems to arouse his constant care and diligent attention to the flock as the fact that even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and be a casualty. Actually, it is often the fat sheep that are the most easily cast. This, the way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly out 
or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. You tell me he's not explaining what happens to us in the midst of our own depression sometimes. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is quite impossible for it to regain its feet. As it lies there struggling, gases begin to build up in the rumen or in the the paunch of the belly, the largest section of the stomach. And as these gases expand, they tend to retard and cut off blood circulation to extremities of the body, especially the legs. If the weather is very hot and sunny, a cast sheep can die in a few hours. If it is cool and cloudy and rainy, it may survive in this position for several days. Now, this part, um, as he speaks about him being a shepherd, he says this, again and again, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. Then more often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. At once, I would start to run toward it, hurrying as fast as I could, for every minute was critical. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy, fear that it might be too late, joy that it was found at all. As soon as I reached the cast lamb, my first impulse was to pick it up, tenderly, and this is, this is our shepherd working in our lives here. Tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the stomach. If she had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet. Then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore the circulation to her legs. This often took quite a little time. When the sheep started to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggered, and collapsed in a heap once more. All the time I worked on the cast sheep, I would talk to it gently. When are you going to learn to stand on your own feet? I'm so glad I found you in time, you rascal. Little by little, the sheep would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely. By and by, it would dash away to rejoin the others, set free from its fear, fears, and frustrations, given another chance to live a little longer. All of this pageantry is conveyed to my heart and, and mind when I repeat the simple statement, he restores my soul. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that Jesus restores our soul is through the sacraments. One of the ways that he reminds us of his love and his care and his grace for us is through the signs and seals of the covenant of grace. You see, when, when Jesus took this bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you, he's saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. This cup filled with this fruit of the vine, with, this is just grape juice, but it represents the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we come forward, we know that we are forgiven. That we are forgiven and we are rescued out of the trench of our own sinfulness. And that we we are restored to fellowship and love by our good shepherd. And we are purchased and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians, 
The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And why, brothers and sisters, do we proclaim the Lord's death? Because it is through the laying down of the shepherd for his sheep that we are saved, that our sins are atoned for, that we are ushered into the family of God, that we are rescued, and that we are loved. So as we come forward, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would set aside these elements from their common use and you would, you would allow your presence to be here spiritually. Father, this will always remain juice. This will always remain bread. But Father, you bless us in this. Father, you pour forth grace and mercy upon your people. So Father, help us to proclaim Jesus' death, for Father, in his death we find life. In his atonement we are reconciled to you. Father, help us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.